Father, we, we praise you for people like Sharon, Sharon, and desire that you would continue to use her in Mexico and empower her and protect her. We don't know the situation in terms of the earthquakes down there, but we just uh, desire that you uh, take care of her to sustain her for as long as you desire to use her down there. We praise you for her work and we praise you that she is having an impact down there and we desire that you bear much fruit through her. We also desire this morning that your word come alive to us, that as we read these words, that they're not just words on a page, but that they would in fact work a work within us, challenge us to uh, walk with you more faithfully and more consistently. We desire that we have understanding and illumination. We know it doesn't just come naturally. We know your spirit teaches us. So we desire to learn from you this morning, from your word, and we commit our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at Romans. For those of you that haven't been with us, only a couple of you here, where are the myriads and myriads of people that you invited? <laughs> They're unseen. They're unseen, ah. You invited angelic creatures. Just a quick review, and I think it's good to kind of keep our thinking in terms of context, even if you've been here consistently. So we're talking about a letter that was written by Paul to believers that probably worshipped in house churches, many of them. We see at the end of the book he refers to different people and the house church that meets in his home or the church that meets in his home. And scholars estimate that there could have been hundreds of them in the city of Rome that had millions of people. So he's writing to a church that he's never been to. Well, he's probably been there as an unbeliever, but not as a believer and as a missionary. So he's writing probably the second best thing since he's delayed on the missionary journey. And he's not going to be able to make it on that trip. So I think the second best thing that he does is he sends a letter. And that's, I think, significant because I think Paul is giving us, I think it's obviously designed by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is giving us probably the theology in a nutshell that he would uh, normally give had he visited Rome just as he would have any other city that he visited. So in that, we have the essence of Pauline theology that gives us a lot of insight into not only Christianity, but a lot of other issues that we've already been looking at. So it's set in the city of Rome, and just a reminder, I've shown you a lot of photographs in the introduction, but just this kind of struck me for some reason when I was looking for photographs. The uh, Arch of Titus, and you can see the Colosseum in the background. These would have been sites and scenes that Paul would have seen. Maybe not the Colosseum because it was built later, and perhaps, well, not the Arch of Titus either, but everything somewhat in that area is first century. Because the Arch of Titus commemorates the victory of Titus in destroying the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So you might notice this relief. I'll blow it up. But that is the commemoration of the destruction of the temple specifically, 
where the Roman army brought back the treasures of the temple, and you can see the menorah there and other items from the temple, that were brought to the city of Rome after the destruction. So if you go to Rome, you might go on another trip, right? Yes. <laughs> we'll visit the site that commemorates that, that occasion. And obviously the most outstanding memorial of first century Rome, even though it was built a little later, is the Colosseum itself, which is something like the stadiums we built build in our culture today. And by the way, that photograph underneath would be where they would store animals that they would use to unleash upon believers or criminals or others that they considered undesirable. So, quick outline of the book, just a a quick review. I'm going to try and go through this quickly. We have an introduction in the first 17 verses. We have actually three parts to it. The first part is a formal introduction with some similarities to the other introductions that Paul uses in other letters. It is longer, more expanded than the others, as is other things in the book of Romans. And in that, we first of all, we have a concentration on the messenger. Paul identifies himself, a bondservant, etc., Secondly, we have the message, so he gives us kind of a thumbnail sketch of what he's going to talk about in the letter. So in verse 2, which he promised beforehand, he's talking about the gospel in verse 1, which he promised beforehand. The heart of the book of Romans is this gospel message. What does it encompass? Now, we think of gospel relating primarily to eternity, primarily salvation relating to eternal destiny. But we'll see from the book of Romans that it is much broader than that as well. In fact, the concept of salvation is very broad. So we have a focus on the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. The focus of the gospel is what Jesus Christ did on behalf of you and I. So he focuses on the message through verse 4. Then he outlines a little bit, beginning in verse 5, the mission, the mission that he has, and uh, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. So he's going to give us the doctrine of grace, which is a major theme in this whole first part of the book. And he's coming as a missionary or a sent one. That's his mission as an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. So this idea of salvation touches the way we live as well, the obedience of faith. So that's the mission, and he has other details in there as well. Then he deals with the membership in verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome. So typically Paul identifies his audience, and in keeping with my alliteration here, we call it membership. And at the end of verse 7, so it's addressed to the church at Rome, or churches, call that as saints, and then we have what, we have to have an M, right? Munificence. How do you like that one? (laughs) Yeah, you have to look that one up. 
In other words, what he's bestowing upon them or wishing upon them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the formal introduction with a lot of similarities to other introductions of other letters. In the second part, he gives us a personal introduction, verses 8 through 15. And in that personal introduction, there are two parts to it, 8 through 10, praising prayer. Praising the Romans, but also expressing that he continually prays for them. That's 8 through 10. And then he has purposeful plans. We have to have a few P's in there. 11 through 15, and in that he reveals that uh, he's writing a letter in lieu of a visit, but he still plans to visit, and sometime in the future he is hoping in God's will to be able to spend time with the churches at Rome. So we have that personal introduction. And then thirdly, he gives us the essence of the books. You might call it an essence introduction, 16 and 17, where he basically gives a thumbnail sketch of everything that's contained in the book. So it's somewhat of a summary of the whole book or the essence of the book. There's two parts to it. Verse 16 seems to focus more on the resource for regeneration. You have to have ours in this one, right? Resource for regeneration. And the resource is the gospel. There's power there. The power of the gospel. We talked about omnipotent power God uses to convert a rebellious heart. It takes a miracle to convert us. And it's in the gospel message. And then we have righteousness revealed, verse 17. And in this gospel message, in this regenerating work, God's righteousness is revealed. And in fact, that whole theme of righteousness is the main theme of the whole book. And it's a revelation of the righteousness of God, what we are dealing with through through the rest of the book. So that's verse 17, or a thumbnail <laughs> sketch of the introduction. After the introduction, we have the provision of God's righteousness The bulk of the book, the major part of the book, is this provision that God has made. This righteousness is available to unrighteous mankind. And our righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah says. And we're going to see, in fact, we have been seeing in the early part, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, that mankind is condemned because mankind is unrighteous. That's the portion that we're still in, and we may still be in it for a couple of years. Who knows? We've already looked at the guilt of all of humanity. I think he kind of summarizes all of humanity in verses 18 to the end of the chapter, and we spent lots of time there because there's lots of principles, there's lots of words Lots of concepts, lots of theology, so we wanted to kind of sort all that out, and we took our time with it, and you guys have been loving it and have not been bored whatsoever, right? And a summary of that portion, a summary of 18 through 32, I break it down into three parts. I separate verse 18 out. It's kind of the underlying principle under everything else he's going to say, actually, all the way till we get to the end of chapter 3, verse 20, is that mankind is under the wrath of God. 
So that theme he develops in some detail in the rest of the chapter, but he doesn't leave that theme until he begins to discuss the solution to this problem right here in verse 18. So in verse 18, we spent a few weeks in it. For the wrath of God. What a way to start a discussion or a a message. Very negative, but that's reality. And this is what Paul starts with. So the wrath of God is revealed. We made a big point that that's present tense. In other words, he's not talking about a wrath far in the future at a distant judgment day. Now, he's going to deal with that in this book, but not right off the bat. He's talking about a wrath that you can visibly see all around you. So that was one of the things that we developed in this passage. The wrath of God is present tense revealed, and it's from heaven, from God himself, and it's against all of us. Anyone not unrighteous outside of Christ. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And what is our tendency? We don't jump at the chance to hear the gospel. We're not begging God to reveal himself to us. What do we do? We suppress revelation that he's already given us. So we are under the wrath of God. And then beginning in verse 19 through 23, he's going to lay out the reasons why mankind is under wrath. And there's a primary reason, and then there's secondary reasons, but the primary reason is what? God what? did not honor him. Well, we did not honor him, but he, he gave us a revelation that was clear. In fact, what did we emphasize in that passage? Just the idea... From the many words in there, uh, not only is it revealed, because that which is known, in other words, we talked about knowledge and the ability to know and the concept of knowing things. We spent a whole session on just knowing things. That's the focus of this whole passage. That which is known about God is evident. It's clear. You can't miss it. We emphasized all of these things. And it's within them. It's an internal revelation. For God made it evident. There's another word. The supernatural power of God is at work, making these things evident. So this revelation, you can't miss it. It's evident. And it's within them, and it's within every single human being. Because in verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... His eternal power and divine nature have been, there it is again, clearly seen. The emphasis on this revelation is crystal clear. It's right before our eyes, but because of depravity, what do we do with it? We suppress it. We substitute other things. Okay, being understood, there's another word of knowing. Being understood through what has been made, So what's the conclusion? They are without an apologetic is the literal word there. Or they're out without a defense. And one of the things we've also been stressing is that Paul is using courtroom language throughout these early chapters and early passages here. You have to put yourself in a courtroom to understand righteousness. In other words, you have a right standing before law. Spiritually, right standing before the lawgiver as well. 
a right standing in relationship to what he has revealed in his law. So we're talking about courtroom issues here. So when he talks about you don't have a defense, you're standing before the judge of the world, and you're totally naked, totally exposed, and you have no apologetic. You have no defense. You are without excuse, is the way a lot of the translations translate it. Because we have rejected what God has made evident, what has put he has put within us, what he has made clear. Does that make sense? So, because of that revelation, and I'll come back to 19 to 23 in a moment, God renders wrath. So that's why wrath is revealed. That's why you can look out into the culture, and if you read these verses here, it's basically as if Paul was writing this letter to 21st century America. You know, the big thing today is transgenderism and all the homosexual stuff. He hits that right at the very beginning there. And that tells us that the culture is abandoned by God. And we'll look at a word there when I get to that point in a moment. But basically, man is under wrath. We have the reasons for that wrath. And then we see that God is rendering that wrath in a present tense sense. All right? You all remember? Just coming back to memory, those of you that have been here. Another way of summarizing what I have here. Now, on the outline sheet, I give you the exegetical outline. Verses 18 and 19, we have revelation and reasons for God's wrath. A revelation of God himself that he has given. And then we have reasons for wrath because in verse 19, talks about us not receiving that, but in fact we reject it. Verses 20 through 21, that revelation, uh, we have revelation and rejection of God's person. God is rejected. And then 22 to 23, we have the results and replacement. You have to have ours in there. So results of rejecting God, it has an impact on mankind, has an impact on his thinking, has an impact on every aspect of his life, rejecting God. And what do we do? We do what Linda does. We substitute science or we substitute something else in the place of God. Vacuuming. Oh, yeah, we substitute vacuuming. Don't forget that. Addictions. Remember that? That's Linda's addiction is vacuuming. Exactly. And then verse 24 through 32, we have the rendering of God's wrath. So in verses 19 and 20, we've got to use ours here, we have realization. In other words, mankind knows that there has to be a God. We made the big point. There's no such thing in reality of an atheist. Atheists don't exist. An atheist is a person that has suppressed the truth that God has already revealed to him. He has suppressed it to the point that he has deceived himself into thinking that there is no God. But in in fact, he has a revelation. And by the way, we stress the point that in evangelism, when you're sharing the gospel, it's good to know this. You don't have to convince people of the existence of God. And the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible does not basically defend the existence of God. It assumes it. And it assumes it because every man has a revelation of God. So you focus basically on the idea that you don't have to 
be overt about it, but in your thinking and in your sharing of the gospel, you have the knowledge that even that person doesn't even know about, but he knows that there is a God, but he suppresses it because he doesn't want to be accountable. So you can share the gospel, and the gospel can awaken what he already knows within him. Linda? Well, keeping that all down. Suppressing it? So that in my it's a lot of attention. It's sort of like having a mean dog walk up to me. Yep. You know, or something. It's like it takes, it takes a lot, a lot of, of energy, a lot of effort. Yeah. We go to great pains to avoid God. We go to great pains in substituting other things for God. So, yeah. but it's not as a result of not knowing God. It's not as a result of being ignorant. Every human being that has ever lived on the earth since the foundations of the world has had this revelation and everyone in the future. Now, we'll get back to verse 20. In verse 20, let me get to it now. It's on the screen there. The natural realm, that's the last part of it, verse 20 there, that which has been made. In other words, the scientist should be the very first one to recognize as he studies the created realm or nature, should be the first one to recognize this can't come about as a result of natural means. There has to be a designer behind all of the design that I observe. There has to be a creator behind all that is made. His fingerprints are all over, so there's an internal revelation and there's an external revelation. So you can't miss it, but we suppress it. Verse 18. So there's realization... And that makes us responsible. That's without excuse. Man stands accountable without a defense and someday is going to have to give an account. Thirdly, man rejects that revelation for even though they knew God, there it is again, the emphasis on it's there, it's within them, they, it's knowledge, it's, it's, it's known. Even though they knew God, they did not, what Bruce said, honor him. Or the word there is doxa, and doxa can be translated how? Since Nate's here, you got to kind of display your Greek knowledge here. Glory. Glory, very good. There's our an actual Greek guy. Yeah, all right. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him. The very purpose that we're all here is to glorify God. We don't glorify him. He's talking about mankind in general here. So we don't glorify him as God or give thanks. In fact, we do the very opposite. But, and here's some of the consequences of it. We rationalize God away. We don't honor him. We don't give him thanks. But we become futile in our thinking. And in fact, you could even include verse 21 as part of the consequences. It has an impact on how we see all of reality and impact on our thinking. It's now distorted. Just as Adam and Eve, remember their whole thinking was distorted as well? What's the first response after sin of Adam and Eve? Well, before excuses, hiding. Here are two individuals that had an experience with the one true God that is omnipresent, not just omnipotent, but omnipresent, 
And without sin, they had a vision of that. They had a knowledge of that. And the moment they had uh, partaken of the fruit and entered into sin, their whole thinking died, if you will. Death occurred. Their thinking was affected. And how do you hide from an omnipresent God? It's stupid. It's illogical. But that's the way that our minds are. So the mind is affected, and how we think affects what we do, so everything else follows as well. So there's a rationalization, and then there's what we might say a reprobation, or in other words, a depravity that follows as a result. We are affected. In fact, we come into the world already predisposed and pre-affected with the sin nature, with our thinking totally distorted already. Okay, so verse 22, professing to be wise, we think we're pretty smart. We think we can figure things out. We get a PhD and say, well, I, you know, I've got my act together here. Professing to be wise from God's perspective, they became fools. So it has an impact. Sin impacts us, not only intellectually, but in every other way. And then in verse 23, we can't live with that empty void somebody has said we have a god-shaped vacuum we got to fill it with something so we find other gods and that's called idolatry we fill that up with other gods and in some cases verse 23 exchanging the glory of the incorruptible god the god that cannot be changed we substitute other things We exchange that God for an image or an idol. And in some cultures, it's a literal idol. In others, it's a somewhat more metaphorical or a spiritual idol, whether it be money or prestige or whatever it may be, in the form. And it took historically the form of man. The the Greeks worshiped man, mankind, and they made images. They made gods out of men. Other cultures, birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. I gave you a list of a lot of cultures that do that. The Egyptians stand out in the Old Testament. So they have all of these other gods. And this is mankind in general. And you can see all this historically. So we replace God. And then what do we have in verse 24 through the end of the chapter? You have to have an R there, right? Yeah. All right, there it is. (laughs) 24 through 32, now we have wrath. <laughs> Mention in there, listen. Notice verse 24, therefore, a huge therefore, because all of what he said before, because God has made himself evident and it's been clear, it is understood, it is internal, it is revealed externally, Therefore, because man has rejected what God has made clear, he has suppressed it. Therefore, because man now is depraved and he is affected, and therefore, because man has substituted other gods for the one true God, therefore, what you can see all around you in the unbeliever, God gave them up or God gave them over, is the way that it's translated here. The wrath of God can be seen when God just abandons either an individual to allow them to experience the consequences of all their 
decisions and choices. And that's what we have in 24 to the end. You see that? So that is a display of the wrath of God. Is God just letting depravity eat us up? When God takes his hand off of an individual or his hand off of a culture, we could say that in terms of our culture today, then man just does what he thinks is right in his own eyes, and that is destructive. That is wrath. That is judgment, because it destroys, and people destroy themselves. And in verses 24 and 25, uh, gave them over in the lusts of their heart, in other words, whatever they wanted to do. You just make up your own mind, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not, I rejected God, I'm going to live my own life, my own way. And it ends in impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. We talked about, this explains addictions. The body is sometimes affected, and it is brought to a person where it affects them physically, and they become addicted to certain things, like vacuuming and other things as well. Yeah, not just heroin and not just alcohol, but even vacuuming. All right. Sorry, Steve that. <laughs> he thought what? It's a pretty good idea. That that was Lin, that was Linda's uh, addiction. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then he emphasizes in verse twenty-five, kind of reiterates what he already said. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Kind of reiterates previous verses in case you missed it. And then a second time. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And you can tell when a culture is in its last days, when it gets into that whole area of homosexuality and all this sexual perversion. We've gone beyond that. We're beyond homosexuality. It, it is kind of, in fact, you suffer if you deny it even. So he describes that. So we talked about that in verses 26 and 27. And then a third time in verse 20, 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God. In other words, they rejected God. Remember, that's the therefore here. Any longer God again. Same word. Paradidomi is the Greek word. God gave them over to a depraved mind. So all of the things that enter into our thinking, our whole mind is now on a downward destructive path that leads to all these other sins. And we have the longest list of sins recorded here. And in verse 32, and although they know the ordinances of God, there it is again, even though we know that there has to be a right and a wrong, and we are on the wrong side of it, we are on the wrong side, that those who practice such things are worthy of death before the judge of the universe. That is the sentence. We are condemned. They not only do the same, in other words, the same sin, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. In other words, it's celebrated. Aren't we supposed to celebrate homosexuality today? That's where our culture's at. But we have a hope, and eventually we'll get to chapter 3, and a solution for the world which we live in. And I think most of you know what that is already. So beginning in chapter 2, we've been emphasizing the justice of God because beginning in chapter 2, and theologians debate, in fact, uh, where do you take the break, Nate, in terms of when does he shift to the Jews? Different scholars take this differently. 
I think it starts in two. I don't mean to sway your decision here, but you can disagree. Well, I've heard it get had five. Yeah, a lot of scholars do. I think Zane Hodges does. And if you do that, then you have kind of an interim group that he's dealing with, the, the moral the moral man. In other words, the man that is attempting to do what God wants. And the reason I start at verse 1, because I think the only ones in the first century that did that were the Jewish people. So just so you be aware, you can make your decision. You can break it at verse 6 or uh, go to verse 1. If so, then verses 1 through 5 are somewhat transitional into this next category, which deals with the with the nation of Israel or the Jews. So he's dealt with all of humanity and said all of humanity is condemned. And now specifically, he's, he's looking at those in that culture that said, preach it, Paul. Those Gentiles, they are horrible. They are condemned. Bring wrath. Bring it on. Because we are privileged, we're okay, we have the law, we're chosen, we are the family of God, and now he's got to deal with that mindset, the moral mindset, and that's the section that we're dealing with. And the, the focus is he takes them back to Old Testament concepts so that they understand the justice of God, and he brings that to the forefront And it should click in their minds. If I understand the justice of God, even though I have the law, even though I am a seed of Abraham, even though I have the oracles of God and all the privileges, even though I have the covenants, he's going to talk about that towards the end there, I stand condemned if I have rejected the Messiah. So he's going to bring that out. So he's going to attack that group. And I break this down similarly to what I broke down to verse 1. I think he has kind of a summary statement, the predicament of the self-righteous in verse 2. Predicament of the self-righteous. Therefore, you are without excuse. And by the way, the only place that he uses that little phrase, without excuse, it's the same word that we saw in verse 20. You do not have a defense. He's still talking in the law court here. In other words, you have no defense. Those of you, and, and notice it's a change here, He's using a second person here. There's a kind of a change in verse 1. You are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. In other words, you're looking down on those Gentiles. You're passing judgment for in that you judge them, another, or specifically Gentiles, you condemn yourself. In other words, you bring condemnation upon yourself. And the reason for you who judge practice the same things. Kind of a summary of what he's going to develop in the following verses. So he's dealing with a self-righteous attitude of those that don't have the righteousness that God has provided. It's their own righteousness. But Isaiah categorizes it as filthy rags. And then in verses 2 through 16, in order to bring to the... Thinking in the forefront, I've outlined the passage as principles of judgment. Principles of judgment. And then we haven't got to this point, but to give you the bigger context here, 17 through 29, now he's going to bring it home and prove the point. Here's the principles of judgment. You stand condemned. And then in chapter 3, we have a fourth part, the first eight verses, 
He deals with some protests that uh, a Jewish person might bring. In other words, arguments that they might raise, and Paul's going to answer those arguments. So we have to stay with the P's here. Predicament of the self-righteous, principles of judgment, the proof of Jewish guilt or Jews' guilt, and then the protests that might be raised by Jewish people. Got it? So the guilt of the Jews, if you started in verse 1, or like I said, another view is you can start it in verse 6 and see the first five verses is somewhat maybe transitional and go through chapter 3, verse 8, the guilt of the Jews. He's already proved the guilt of all of humanity. Now he's dealing with that resistant group that says we are privileged. Gives a predicament, verse 1, and then the principles. And I've outlined this part on several principles. Verse 2, it's based on truth. In other words, when the judge of the universe brings a case in court, a case, it is based on absolute truth. So we talked about truth and absolute truth and God knowing all truth and God omniscient. And there is a hard disk somewhere that has a record of every thought, every action, every attitude. All of those facts are going to be brought before the judge of the universe. And it's going to separate all that that is false, all that that is fuzzy, all that that is not true. It's based on truth. It's based on absolute truth. And God is truth. In other words, he's the embodiment of absolute truth. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember I gave you all those verses. God is truth. And not only that, but he knows all truth. And he's revealed truth. He's revealed absolute truth. So it's on the basis of God himself. So nothing will escape his notice. It's based on truth. All right? Second principle, it's based on the principle of inescapability. Remember, I used the illustration. There's different ways people today can escape judgment for the crimes that they have committed. You might be clever enough to not be detected. You, you know, a lot of thieves get away with thievery because, you know, you can't find them and you can't find the goods that they've stolen and they escape. They sent them down to Mexico, and before, you know, so they escape. We talked about in a law court, there may not be enough evidence to convict. So you might you might have committed the crime, but they, the lawyer can't prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. So you might escape. You know, there's all these things. But in terms of the ultimate court, there's no escapability. And I think he brings that in verses 3 and 4. So there's no escape from God's judgment. We're tangled up in the barbed wire of our sin, if you will. Yeah. And Craig liked this slide. <laughs> Connie got all excited there. Yeah, yeah, we had to hold Connie down there for a while. Yeah, so it's based on inescapability, but God's judgment, and by the way, this, this is designed, I think, for the Jewish mindset to realize and to bring to the forefront truth dealing with them is very important in terms of God seeing through all the superficiality. In other words, they are externally observant to the law, externally doing all the ritual, but God sees through all that. So he sees all all truth, and no one's going to escape. There are no exceptions. There are no privileged people. We all stand before the same holy God. 
And then we also know that it's based on conduct. That's the emphasis verses 5 through 8. In other words, what we do, what we think, our attitudes, our motivations, they're all recorded and they all will be part of that judgment. And as a result, there's going to be overwhelming evidence that condemns not only the Gentile, but the Jew. He's not going to be able to stand up in court. He's without apologetic, without excuse. And today, time to go, right? (laughs) Verses 9 through 11, it's based on impartiality. That's where we're at in the context. So we've got four principles based on truth, based on the concept of inescapability, based on what we actually do, conduct that stems from how we think and our motivations, etc., And now it's based on God as an impartial judge. Again, we're in a courtroom. So verses 9 through 11, and what do we do with when we approach a passage? We break it down into what? Whole sentences. We expound sentence by sentence, not verse by verse. It's not quite as precise as sentence by sentence. So you read through verse 9, at the end of verse 9, at the end of verse 9 you have a comma there. Now, we've talked about the Greek text, there's not punctuation, but you use the grammar to decide and you keep reading, but you keep on reading and you don't come to a period till you get the end of verse 10. So that's the sentence, and then what do we look for after that? Look for the first independent clause, primarily centered in the subject and the verb, as as Linda is telling us. What is the subject of the sentence? Tribulation, is that it? Hmm? And distress. What is the verb? Will be. So the essence of everything in that sentence, if that's the only independent clause, deals with experiencing tribulation and distress and it's going to come about in some way, and everything else is just telling us something about it. What about the but? The but is a contrast to what we have there, all right? There will be tribulation and distress, so that's kind of the essence of what he's talking about. There's essentially some kind of a suffering, some kind of wrath even, some kind of bad situation. This passage emphasizes a principle of consequences. Principle of consequences. This is a very important concept. In fact, one way we can apply this principle is in the family. And most of you have grown kids, so this is for Nate and Ruthann. (laughs) But most of you have grandkids as well, and you can still instruct. There are principles that God has laid out, and I think what he's laying out here is a principle of consequences. He has built a universe with consequences. In fact, in the physical realm, in the sciences, there's the well-known material physical principle of cause and effect. And we can use that to demonstrate that if there's a universe... That argues for there has to be a universe maker. There has to be an ultimate cause of the universe that we can observe. But that also applies in the spiritual realm as well. So there are physical laws, the the principle of cause and effect. Every effect has a greater cause 
and all of the causes that follow that. So that's kind of a universal concept. And Paul is dealing with the principle here, I think, of consequences. And this is important, and I might not get through the whole verse. If we don't, we'll pick it up next week. But let's talk about this somewhat in conclusion here, this principle, because it's very important. And one of the main ways that I observe, and I'm an expert in this, you know, because I don't have children. (laughs) So that makes me an expert in this. The observation I make, this is probably the main area that parents fail in raising children. Do I have your attention? We learn through a variety of means. There are many ways by which we learn. Now, we normally think in terms of, well, I go to school, I learn things, I read books, I learn things, I have teachers, mentors, I have people that instruct me, and I learn. That's one means of learning. All right. I also can look and observe and see. I can learn things from the experience of others. Others, older people, wiser people, can say, hey, don't invest in that, uh, you know, or whatever. Don't go that way. Don't do that. Because I, you know, I tried it. It doesn't work. So we can learn from the experience of others. Particularly parents. Children can learn from the experience of their parents. They've done all the bad things that their children have done, so they can tell them, don't do it. Look what happened to me. Okay, so we can learn from the experience of others. We can learn from Scripture, and we learn spiritual things from God's revelation. A very important area of learning is consequences, consequences of action. Children have to learn this concept the concept, and you parents sometimes can't do anything about it. You tell them, don't touch the hot stove, that almost motivates them to go see, why does he not want me to touch the hot stove? So the child has to touch the hot stove to learn, oh, now I know, that I don't. that's painful. Your discipline, your corporal punishment is designed to teach. In other words... I told you not to do that. There's consequences, and the consequences are painful. Consequences are painful, so I've got to paddle you so that you begin to learn that I should not do that. A mistake that parents make, and I've seen it, in fact, I saw it up front with a cousin of mine, is parents see their children suffering, and what's the natural instinct, particularly mothers? Oh, I don't want them to suffer. So what do you do? You try to fix it, as Linda says, or you try to remove the consequences. When you do that, you're taking away a learning tool that God has designed. Make sense? And I saw a series of events in a cousin of mine, and he died age 40 because he never learned the concept of consequences. You know, teachers picked on him, so, you know, they went to bat for the kid at school and made problems there. After school, you know, the cops are picking on him. There's always these circumstances. The culture is against him. So he dies of two or three addictions at age, I don't know, 40-something. That's the pattern. Parents, in fact, I was talking to a friend last night, actually, and she was telling me about a son that had a car accident because he had he was drinking, and she's afraid that 
She's going to try to get him a new vehicle because he destroyed the one that he had. And I said, that's a huge mistake. And she knows it. I mean, she knew, my friend knew it. And she was wondering how to counsel the other one. Don't do it. You know, this is consequences. He need, if he doesn't learn it now, then he's going to have to suffer more later. But the inclination of your parents is, you know, I don't want them to hurt. So you try to fix it. You try to relieve the pain, but you may be lifting the consequences so that they're not learning what is right and what is wrong. You see that? So in the passage, and there's lots of examples of that, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. There are consequences to what we do. And I think this is the broad concept that he's bringing out here. And there's broad spiritual consequences of every soul. The emphasis there, suke, is soul there. And that means what? So that you guys can show, Nate, your Greek knowledge, suke, soul, exactly. Every soul. Now, in some contexts, and I think probably in this context, that word is not just referring to that inward nature of mankind, but I think it's looking at the total person. In some contexts, it refers to the total person. Distress and the idea of every... Let's see. I don't think it's panta. The next one is panta. But anyway, the idea is it applies to everyone. Jew, Gentile. In fact, that's what he's going to stress at the end of the verse. Everyone. No one's exempt from these consequences. Doesn't matter. You might be the most brilliant person in the world. You jump off a 10-story building and what's going to happen? There's going to be consequences. The law of gravity doesn't look at whether you have a degree after your name. The consequence is the same. Similarly, in the spiritual realm is what Paul is saying. So the emphasis is there's no exclusion. Every soul, no exclusions. To the Jew first, this is the audience. First time he mentions it, clearly, the Jew first, also the the Greek. So it includes the privileged. It includes the Jew first, priority. And we don't have time, we'll start here next week, but we'll look at Amos 3.2, and we'll look at Luke 12.48 next week, and we'll concentrate on what those verses tell us, basically emphasizing the idea that no one is excluded. There are no privileged people when it comes to the justice of God. And it's not those externals that are going to satisfy that unrighteous condition. He's got to convince the Jew of that idea before the Jewish mindset is ready to realize that there's only one solution and it comes through the Messiah. So we'll pick up there. So the Jew first, also the Greek. Just a closing thought here. God judges impartially. We should be impartial in our treatment of others as well. Who wants to close for us? Connie. Father, thank you so much for your revelation of us. So that your nation for safety as they travel, that this will be a time of refreshment and strengthening for them. They can go back at the ground running and will help us to dwell on for us and escape and do Amen.